Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. Welcome to Hong Kong on the Brink. I'm Jude Blanchett, and today we're joined by five of the activists at the center of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. Nathan Law, Denise Ho, Joshua Wong, Jeffrey Ngo, and Brian Leong. You can find their complete bios on our podcast webpage. In today's episode, we discussed their recently completed meetings with U.S. lawmakers, where they advocated for the passage of the Human Rights and Democracy Act. We also discussed their plans to build momentum behind the protests through the upcoming 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China on October 1st. Turning to you, Jeffrey, we're now recording this Friday night. You've had a long and exhausting trip, I would imagine. You've been shaking a lot of hands. A lot of press coverage coming out of this. Just as an external observer, it looks like you've gotten a lot of the attention and raised the issue that you were hoping to, but what's your assessment? And specifically, how do you read the prospects for the Human Rights and Democracy Act, which uh, looks like it's it, it's moving to passage? But more importantly, is that is that sufficient? Yeah, uh, certainly, you know, we have been in Washington for the past week, and our most important thing to do this past week has been to, to lobby for more support on Capitol Hill uh, in terms of uh, passing the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. It was first introduced back in 2014, actually uh, in the middle of the umbrella movement. This is 2019. Uh, this is the fourth time that the bill has been introduced. And uh, for the past three times, the bill has never moved beyond committee. But from, from our meeting this week with key congressional leaders, uh, we, we know that in both the House of Representatives and in the Senate, that in, indeed they will be debating it and pushing it forward through the committee. Hopefully, the bill will, will go to the floor very soon. Uh, you know, We did have a, a very nice press conference organized by uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, who is fully behind uh, this bill. In fact, when she was still minority leader in 2014, she was one of the original co-sponsors of the bill. So, so the prospects of getting that passed, uh, we, are, we are pretty optimistic. Um, but I think you're right, certainly in terms of what's next. The bill would allow the creation of sort of a list and, and you know, individuals placed on the list would face a probable uh, sanctions, freezing of their U.S.-based assets, sort of uh, barring them from entering the United States. Uh, and then the other part of the bill that's very important is the annual certification. So the Secretary of State has to submit a report uh, every year to Congress, informing Congress whether he or she believes that Hong Kong is still uh, sufficiently autonomous from China in order to justify Hong Kong's status as a separate customs territory. And of course, that's very important because Beijing actually reaps all the economic benefits from this arrangement. So in terms of how this bill will be implemented after it gets passed, it really depends on 
the administration and, and the current administration and the future administration. Uh, and of course, you know, to us, it's, it's important that there is new thinking, I think, in terms of how uh, Washington policymakers are thinking about China. Uh, I think for the past a couple of decades, you know, perhaps since as early as the early 1970s, uh, when President Richard Nixon first went to China, th there seems to be a bipartisan consensus that engaging with China is the best way uh, to, to help China be more like the world, respect international law, and conform to the international world order. It seems to be the case that usually whichever administration or whichever party is in power in the White House, then they would be uh, more friendly to China and the opposition party would emphasize uh, more on human rights and democracy issues like that. But I think we're seeing an escalation in terms of the relations between China and the US uh, in light of the ongoing trade war. Pursuing a trade war with China might or might not be the best way forward. Um, but I don't think that we can deny mm. that there is now an emerging new bipartisan consensus, and that is that uh, Washington cannot simply uh, focus on engaging China, but that uh, Washington must recognize mm. the threat of a, a rising China to universal values and the values that Hong Kong is certainly mm. treasure, uh, what we're doing in terms of protesting on the street all summer. So I think we will be expecting new foreign policy directions by people from both sides of the political divide uh, when it comes to, to China. And I I think what has been important for us is that we have been able to get Hong Kong uh, into that conversation. Mm. So that when people think about when the trade deal is being negotiated, will China honor that trade deal? Well, there's a cer certainly a lot to be learned from Hong Kong's experience where you see China clearly violating an international agreement, in this case, the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, which promises a high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong, independent uh, judiciary, freedom of speech, freedom of Assembly, all these have been threatened. So I think that uh, you know, looking at the experience in Hong Kong will help Washington mm -hmm. policymakers to think about what's the best way forward uh, in terms of dealing with China. And so certainly, I think that the passage of the uh, of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act in the near future, we hope, uh, with bipartisan consensus, uh, will be an important milestone uh, when it comes to this long trajectory of U.S.-China relations. Denise, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the political pressures that have been brought on you personally. I've heard you speak before about mm -hmm. it started with the umbrella protests and has continued to today. How has participating in some of these political activities impacted your own career? I started my activism in 2014, where I participated in the umbrella movement. And so at that time, um, after the umbrella movement, I have been facing self-censorship from corporates and government institutions from Hong Kong and also, of course, in China. I have been blacklisted and my songs and my name are all taken off shelves. And so five years later now, after these few months of protests in Hong Kong, where my own level of activism has uh, escalated into another level where I have spoken in more international stages, including the UN and recently in the US Congress. So I have been sensing this second wave of political repercussions that is coming along, where these censorships are not only happening in Hong Kong and China, it's happening also overseas. Recently, I've been in Australia, and we have had difficulties, me and Chinese artist Badu Tao, in finding a venue within Melbourne uh, in Australia. We asked 10 different venues, and then nine of them came back with rejections, saying, 
thing. Uh, may, like sometimes it's because of security concerns, or sometimes it's because of the nature of our events is not appropriate in their venue. And also locally in Hong Kong, I have also been facing difficulties in getting. Uh, venues, or even uh, there have been, uh, you know, previously committed venues who have rejected my presence uh, you know, later on in 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 the year. So this sort of threat is is very real, and also it is not only uh, targeting people like me, uh, because we have seen corporates in Hong Kong, say for example, the major uh, airlines, Cafe Pacific, where they have been firing employees over their political stance. And uh, MTR Corporation you know, shutting down their subway stations in the request of the police, therefore helping with the arrests of the protesters. This is happening everywhere in the world, actually. So I do believe that uh, the Hong Kong people are in the forefront of this very global fight mm. where we are trying to save our universal values. So, Brian, that actually brings up a question when I was listening to Denise speak about the tactics that Beijing is using this time around. And in the same way that a lot of the the protesters and activists, including yourselves, have evolved in terms of how you're thinking about tactics since 2014, Beijing clearly has been evolving as well. So when you're looking out at the tactics Beijing is using on the ground in Hong Kong, but more generally, Hong Kong's strategy, um, how are you all thinking about how it's evolving And crucially, as you look forward to the coming months and trying to keep the pressure up, including through October 1st, can you give me a sense of how you read Beijing's strategy, tactics, and, and, and its playbook? Right. I think uh, you mentioned that, you know, protesters actually evolve and the Beijing also evolve, right? Uh, we learn as a protester from the experience of Umbrella Movement in 2014, where Beijing's strategy is basically to wait out the movement and let the movement die out of, you know, internal divisions, right? And now the protesters respond to that tactic by decentralizing our movement, right? By allowing everyone has ownership over the movement, right? So everyone could come up with initiative and no single leader could be co-opted into dialogue platform that, you know, which would cause like a lot of internal division if like people are co-opted, right? So I think, I, I don't think Beijing actually have a very clear plan in terms of how to react to our, you know, evolution into a decentralized movement, right? There's no single leader they could co-op or, you know, become a partner of their dialogue platform. And the tactic has so like of so much variety and so much creativity that I think the government is hard to stop. And in a more general picture, I think Beijing might wanna you know avoid bloodshed on the day of October first, where it will be the 70th anniversary of the establishment of PRC. Right? They might not want bloodshed of that day in particular. But after that, mm-hmm. I think we, from past experience, you can actually see that they might wanna avoid the uh, embarrassment on the, a very iconic day. But afterward, they actually, when international attention subside and people, uh, the PRC actually will be much more aggressive in terms of repressing its people. We have heard a lot of news about, you know, troops have been moved uh, around the border. They have been, there is rotation, military rotation uh, in the PLA that is stationed in Hong Kong. And so we really have to pay attention to what might, uh, what, what, what Chinese government might do after October 1st, where, you know, international attention subsides. And the second one, I think uh, a crucial point about this movement, our strategy has become more diverse and building international alliance and community is actually a new strategy that we as a delegation team try to put forward is to promote our course in the international community, forge better alliances, advocate uh, concrete policy change in terms of the 
uh, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act in the Congress, right? So we are trying to build an international alliance that Beijing also have a hard time to deal with. Think about the upcoming presidential election in Taiwan, where actually our movement have turned the tide in favor of the DPP in, uh, in Taiwan, and Beijing have to it, it constrain their action, right? Mm. And on the other hand, also, we talk about the bill in America, uh, the Hong Kong uh, Human Rights and Democracy Act is gaining momentum in America, right? So if China is going much more aggressive in Hong Kong, it actually further you know, the momentum in favor of Hong Kong people, right? So what I mean is that China is actually walking on a thin rope. They do not have a, lo- a lot of room in terms of their strategy, and I don't think they have figured out a very uh, complete, you know, uh, plan to deal with the protester. You know, on that question, though, I wonder if you think there are any red lines for Beijing where it will feel backed into a corner in which, you know, in the end, it seems to me that the muscle memory for the Communist Party can often be using coercion and violence if it feels like core political interests are, are a threat. We've seen this in the past. Um, how much does that, a concern about that, play into your thinking about strategy and tactics? Or do you think, given international pressure, uh, given how uh, you know, you've got U.S. Congress potentially passing a bill, you've got the Taiwan election playing into it, do you think violence is off the table for Beijing, whether that's through people's armed police or, or, or other tactics? I think the red line for Beijing might be if Hong Kong really derail into a situation of chaos and, you know, the protesters have turned into a full-blown, you know, uh, violent campaign, right? And I think actually that is not the case and it's not going to be the case, right? We've talked about, again, the protesters have been extremely conscious about, you know, the ramification of uh, exercising use of force. They also know that, you know, our strength in this protest is based on diversity of tactics and creativity, right? So having that kind of repertoire of a lot of different tactics and going to uh, persuade our international community and friends that, you know, actually our course is also your course. And there is like moral value that unite us together, right? And there's actually ways for you to voice out your concern and, you know, make the change for Hong Kong, right? So I think the Hong Kong protests have faith that, you know, they will continue the way it is now, continue to maintain that diversity so that, you know, that red line would not be crossed. And I think uh, to keep real pressure on Beijing instead of like forcing it to use the military apparatuses. So, Nathan, I want to turn to you to ask about Beijing through Carrie Lam has conceded on one of the five demands. And I noticed immediately... Mm. You were all saying it's five demands, not just not just one. Yeah, is that actually the case, though? I mean, are there four demands that are equally weighted? Yeah, uh, uh, amongst the protesters, or for example, can we imagine if Beijing tomorrow came out and said we're going to uh, sack Carrie Lam, and we're going to uh, announce an independent commission to look at uh, not only f- police tactic and violence, but some of the underlying issues? Do you think the the protest would still uh, move forward, or or might that give a gut punch, so to speak, to the momentum? Well, I do believe that we have a huge consensus on the basis that uh, the five demands are equally important and it's really important that we force the government to do all of that, uh, even though the government has been fully withdrawn the bill. But uh, for now, uh, among these like four demands left, there, there is one actually getting uh, much more uh, acceptance generally in the society, which uh, according to the latest poll, that nearly like 80% of the respondents are supporting setting up an independent inquiry commission on the police brutality. And I do believe that if that is the case, the government is going to push forward that demand, then we could have we could create a much more broader room to look into the possibility of uh, getting the other three demands. Because for now, uh, Carrie Lam has been saying that 
the police force is the only reliance that she can get, uh, which means that she's been hiding behind the police force and the police has been using excessive brutality to disperse the protesters instead of um, using a political means or a political dialogue to resolve the problem. So if Carrie Lam indeed, well, by setting up an independent investigation commission on the police brutality, then she may not be able to hide behind mm. the police anymore, and she must face the mass public and our public demands. So I do believe that uh, for now, our visit to the DC and this trip, we have particularly stressed on the um, issue of police brutality. And by unfolding that, we may create a much more broader or a more um, inclusive uh, political spectrum mm. that we could work on the other demands. Josh, I want to turn to you to ask about, I would heard you said earlier today that you know, it's not one country, two systems anymore. At best, it's one country, one and a half system. Thinking down the road, let's imagine a scenario where you're successful in the four demands. You still have 2047. What happens in 2047? And wh what will Hong Kong look like then, even assuming best case scenario mm. and you now have universal suffrage? Yeah. According to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, it guarantees Hong Kong people enjoy one country, two system with the 50 years unchanged policy until 2047. But what will happen next after 2047? That's the issue that haven't solved and haven't provide the answer by this international treaty registered in the United Nations. Even Hong Kong people in the best scenario enjoy free election or universal suffrage tomorrow. But what will be the political and economic status of our global city? That's the uncertainty mm -hmm. exists. I think that's the reason that people in Hong Kong have the experience to advocate on self-determination, which means that, of course, in the most best scenario, we really hope Hong Kong people can elect our own government instead of handpicked by Beijing. But what will happen next after 2047, especially is still around three decades later, and lots of the young activists, including me, mm. will be the age of 50. And what we hope is people around the world could realize that the future of Hong Kong, having the closer ties with the global community, mm. having a closer ties with the international treaty. And that's also the reason for us travel abroad mm. to seek for international solidarity. I guess the, the issue of what Hong Kong will look like in 2047 is also a question of what China will look like in 2047. As briefly as possible, what's your prognostication of what China's political system will look like? With the uprising China model that exists in the past two decades, people always assume that uh, Hong Kong will be more closer to the system in Hong Kong. China will have a more closer, a similar system with Hong Kong instead of Hong, the system of Hong Kong will just push backward to be more similar as mainland China. But as what's happened in the recent years, especially under the hardline suppression of President Xi Jinping, people may aware that in the worst scenario, the one country, one system that now already eroded to be one country, one and a half system, it may just result in one country, one system in 28 years later. And that's also the reason mm. I hope the world could aware that safeguard political and economic freedom of Hong Kong is not only the responsibility of Hong Kongers, but also matters for global community. Mm. Great. And, and we, even though it's almost six o'clock on a Friday, I want to use the last minute to do a lightning round. If we meet again 12 months from now, where will things stand? 
I hope that by having strong bipartisan support in Hong Kong's democratic movement and the struggle, that we could at least have uh, some leverage that we could uh, negotiate with the uh, Chinese government, that we could guarantee our autonomy and democracy that were being promised in the Sino-British Joint Declaration signed in 1980s. And I do believe that is the, uh, the foremost uh, legitimacy of our struggle. So that's pretty much the situation I hope 12 months later. To me, it's like I think Hong Kong has to be embedded into the international community much better. As Jeffrey has said, I think Hong Kong can be a contribution to the world in terms of the rethinking of how to interact with China, right? So I think there is a lot for Hong Kong people to learn from the world, and also the world is also taking inspiration from Hong Kong. So I think that kind of embeddedness and growing interaction and you know, with the world community is our strength in the future. Supporting Hong Kong is not a matter of left or right. It's a matter of right or wrong. So it's time to let people around the world to aware that under the uprising sharp power China model with authoritarian rule, I hope more people can stand with Hong Kong, especially I think the new chapter of the bipartisan consensus in the Capitol Hill is the good starting point. Mm. For me, it has always been about the people. So hopefully in 12 months on the grounds of Hong Kong, we can see this kind of determination going on to the next generation or even uh, people from those who have not participated or those who have not thought they would have the ability to participate. They would be onto the fight together with the people who already are. And then on uh, a wider perspective, personally, I would really like to see uh, you know, this sort of determination inspire or even empower other communities worldwide and maybe even to form more alliances uh, among not only these uh, politics sectors, but really activists and like global communities working on these issues together as one. I think certainly, you know, whether it's 2014, uh, the umbrella movement or the current protest in 2019, uh, obviously we are thinking about democratization. We're thinking about defending our values. Um, but as, you know, as Joshua has touched on it, uh, this earlier, I think fundamentally for our generation, the biggest thing uh, is what happens in 2047. Uh, 12 months from now, uh, I don't know how that movement will lead to. But in any case, I think that when we talk about deterioration of Hong Kong right now, some commentators uh, from around the world have resorted to compare. Hong Kong under Chinese rule versus Hong Kong under British rule. I think for us, for our generation in Hong Kong, but hopefully also for the international community, that we are able to imagine a future beyond the binary of Hong Kong under Chinese rule, Hong Kong under British rule. But what will Hong Kong's future be like when Hong Kongers have a choice to choose our political and economic system beyond 2047, after which obviously uh, nothing has been said. So uh, for us, whatever we do is, is always about self determination. And I think hopefully that conversation can move forward from, from today. Great. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. And I hope you, you can all get to, get to bed soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 